Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome back to another episode of the Madhouse Podcast. As always, I am your host, Mad Max. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about becoming Ric Flair. Woo! This is the, um, this is the, this was the original documentary that Peacock had did with the WWE, and it was chronological, it was chronologizing the life of, the life and career of Nature Boy Ric Flair, his illustrious career from the 70s to now, and uh, just the highs of his career, as well as personal and tragic lows, and, uh, you know, by, by that time, this came out earlier this year, a little bit late last year, um, Ric Flair's career is marked by the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, both professionally and personally. Um, this the the fact that this man is still alive after all the shit that he's been through is just amazing, you know, and everything like that. And it's very tragic. My honest opinion about Ric Flair, he's no doubt, without a doubt, one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time. You got to give credit where credit is due. And everything like that. For this guy to be this popular, he's like Hulk Hogan popular. But he never worked for Vince McMahon until the 90s. And that was the in crazy part. Like, everybody knew who Ric Flair was. Especially, like, in the South. You know, the Mid-South area, the Mid-Atlantic area. And everybody like that. Flair was a household name. You know, he was, you know, he was the the NWA's answer to Hulk Hogan. And everything like that. So... For him to kind of, I don't want to say stumble on that stardom, but, you know, they, they needed a star. Like every territory, like back in the 80s, the late 70s, early 80s, that territory system that uh, that existed, the Mid-Atlantic area didn't have a, a lot of top guys surrounded that area. Up in, in New York, they just got Hulk Hogan, and he had started to expand in, in a way that was there. But by then the the southern region like that mid-atlantic from the carolinas on down they needed a a star so they got um they got rick flair and flair became a superstar and other guys in in the northern part like canada you had the hearts that was a dynasty that wasn't really going anywhere and then you know out west you know you in the in memphis you had guys like jerry lawler and guys like that, and then in the mid south area, like you know Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, and it, well, I would say I shouldn't say Texas because Texas had world class championship wrestling, WCCW, which was run which was run by the Von Erichs, but they also had a slew of talent come through there. Like I think Steve Austin had come through there, the Ultimate Warrior had come through there, uh, the UWF in the mid south area, like Louisiana and Mississippi, Alabama and Arkansas, and those places, they had guys like J- Junkyard Dog and the million dollar man Ted DiBiase and all those guys. So for Flair to kind of come out of that scene and everything like that, Flair was well well in this well known in that region, you know, from the from the Carolinas and Georgia and everything like that and you know, he was a household name and the fact that he was just you could put his promos up against Hulk Hogan's or Randy Savage's uh, promos like that, you know, back in those 80s, and they could really go. I think the difference was Ric Flair was that first dose of professional wrestling that the world wasn't really hip to yet. Because at the time in the 80s, when Vince McMahon and the WWE were, you know, doing the whole WrestleMania thing, it was more of a sports entertainment. 
Like Hulk Hogan represents the pinnacle of sports entertainment in the 80s. Whereas Ric Flair represents the pinnacle of professional wrestling in the 80s. And there's always that huge dichotomy there. And man, the incredible rivalries that Ric Flair had in the 80s, whether it was the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, whether it was, um, you know, Harley Race, whether it was Sting or whether it was the Ricky the Dragon Steamboat or Lex Luger or any of those guys, you know, in the 80s and things like that. It was just something crazy. And then for him to make the jump to the WWE in 90, 90 91, because he, he's the surprise entrance in the Royal Rumble. He beats Hulk Hogan and becomes the champion. And it's like, damn. And he gives that great promo, you know, with a tear in my eye. The greatest moment in my life. And it's like Flair had just got out of a bad relationship in WCW at the time. And then he comes to WWE and it's already, you know, instant credibility because he's got some, he's already, you know, he wins the WWE title, wins the Royal Rumble. I mean, he's already got, you know, that's that's two things, two major wins right there in one. Not only does he win the Royal Rumble, but he becomes the champion. And then he goes on to main event WrestleMania 8 against Randy Macho Man Savage and a pretty intense, a pretty intense and personal rivalry when you look at that. Because WWE was all about that that soap opera type of storytelling and they really kind of dragged it out with Randy Savage's wife and everything like that. And Ric Flair was with her first and all this other stuff. And it was it was kind of cool. Then Flair, then by the time the mid-90s come around, Flair goes back to WCW and has arguably some of his best years in the late 90s even though in the in the late in the mid to late 90s the WCW is remembered for the NWO angle that's really all it's remembered for you still had classic guys like Flair and Sting and Goldberg and all those guys but you know Flair was kind of the flagship of what WCW was and then when WCW closed uh, closed, you know, closed its doors in 2001. Flair was the final match of W of Monday Night Nitro in 2001 was Ric Flair versus Sting, a classic match that the WCW fans had always been accustomed to. And then Flair has his Flair has a six year run in WWE, seven years, yeah, six or seven, I think, because he comes in 2001 after that debacle that was the 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 invasion angle and then he has that lucrative run um with evolution going into 2002 all the way until about 2005 and you know there from 05 to 08 he has those kind of in between stuff where he's just kind of he he's not in big time matches or anything like that and he wins the intercontinental title which I thought was crazy for somebody in his late 40s early 50s to be winning championships and then he has the farewell match, the uh, career-threatening farewell match at WrestleMania 24 against Shawn Michaels. And at that time, you know, the stipulation was the next time Flair lost the match, he was going to retire. So a lot of guys were getting that pushed, you know, to try to dethrone Flair, and they waited till WrestleMania. And Flair had, um, Flair wrestled Shawn Michaels and. A pretty heartbreaking match because, you know, if you if as a fan, you kind of knew this was going to be it. Like the a, a shocking moment would have been if Flair won, if he beat Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania, that would have been crazy. And, uh, you know, there's that heartbreaking notion at the end. Flair's like staggering to get up and Shawn Michaels is kind of sizing him up. But at the same time, he's 
you can see he's torn. He wants to be the showstopper, Mr. WrestleMania and all this stuff, but he sees his hero in Ric Flair, the man that he idolizes, just barely standing up, and Flair's got those hands. He balls up his fist like he's ready to fight, and you can tell he's breaking down emotionally, and Sean says... The camera does a perfect job of capturing Shawn Michaels' mouth, the words, I'm sorry, I love you, super kick, and it's over. And I was like, damn, that's that's pretty impressive storytelling right there. And then Flair has his moment where he says farewell and everything like that. Now, that should have been the, the, here's where my issue is with Flair. That should have been his final match. That he should no longer have wrestled that. And I'm only speaking from a fan's point of view. I know a lot of guys, they don't want to they don't want to quit unless their body tells them to quit. Steve Austin said he would have kept going had his body not shut down. Triple H was going well into his late 40s and everything like that. These guys were still going. All it takes is one bad injury or one bad move to kind of end it all. You know, Triple H collapsed one time in the ring against Curtis Axel. And then he recently just retired. I think it was last year. Same thing with The Undertaker, man. He was, you know, those guys don't know when to hang it up. And Flair, same thing, man. Flair, Hogan, Taker, those guys, you know. But even a guy like Kurt Angle, who's an Olympic, who's an, uh, an amateur wrestler, an Olympian, you know what I mean? Those guys, it's, it's hard to walk away from your life's work. And you don't know when it's time to hang it up. In The Undertaker's documentary, The Last Dance, um, uh, the la- well, it's not called The Last Dance, it's called The Last Ride of the Phenom. He says the same thing. He didn't know it was time to hang it up, or he was contemplating it until one of the veterans thanked him. It was, it was The Undertaker's match at WrestleMania 18 when he fought Ric Flair. And Flair came up to him and says, thank you for restoring my confidence. And even though Taker didn't get that at that time, fast forward 10, 10 12 years later, when Taker finally retired, um, he it, it finally clicked. And if you go back and watch that match between Undertaker and Flair in 2002, that was pretty good. You know, because, you know, it was crazy because they didn't have anything planned for The Undertaker, who's never lost at WrestleMania at that time. And then they weren't even using Ric Flair. You know, it's like, it's crazy. And Taker said, I want to wrestle Flair. At WrestleMania, yeah, I'm going to wrestle Flair. And, you know, Flair. so WrestleMania 24, that was supposed to be Ric Flair's last match. Flair retired, and he you saw him sporadically through the years. And then over time, uh, you would see a lot of older... When I say older, I mean like guys who had kind of already hung it up somewhat in TNA. And then in like 2010, 2011, TNA, you saw guys like Mick Foley popped up, China popped up, uh, Rob Van Dam had popped up, and then Ric Flair popped up. Flair, Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff had all popped up in in TNA, and they're having matches. And I was like, what the hell? You know, and then the, like TNA, all due respect to TNA for the stars that they created, like Samoa Joe and AJ Styles and Daniels and Motor City Machine Guns, Beer Money Inc., all the guys, Jay Lethal, all the guys that came from TNA who became stars there. Mazel talk to those guys. That was that was great. But then that period when guys like Vince Russo and Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan were running the show behind the scenes, 
you know, once you saw guys like Flair and Hogan there, it was like, oh, okay, this is just kind of embarrassing. You know, Flair was was a middle-aged man who didn't really know how to hang it up. Now, if they had used Flair as a manager, you know, in, in, a, in a supporting role, I think that would have been phenomenal. That would have been great. But the fact that they started putting him in matches and the fact that his body just looked worn down and torn to shit, and it, it was really bad. Then he make he made sporadic returns to the WWE. His daughter debuts. His daughter has some good fuse. They reform Evolution and all this other stuff. And you know that's all leading to these moments that Flair had in uh, in his life and everything like that. And his career was starting to come. I'm so a lot of people think his career came full circle when when Charlotte Flair was having the success that she had. But Flair was already. Full circle. I mean, that night at WrestleMania when he retired against Shawn Michaels, that was the full circle. He was already inducted into the Hall of Fame. He was already, you know, one of the one of the top, if not one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time. He didn't need it. He that match should have been the end of his career. But the fact that he continued on into TNA and then recently, I think it was last year, last year or earlier this year, they had the final farewell Ric Flair match. <laughs> And people said it was it was it was it was sad, you know. It was really sad the fact that Flair had wanted to do that, you know. It wasn't the same Flair that they saw. It was, you know, they were trying to, and Flair was willing to pay shit tons of money to get one of his old guys to kind of wrestle him again. And you know, Steamboat turned it down. Sting and Luger, well, Luger can't even move anymore, but Luger, I mean, Sting had turned it down. Steamboat had turned it down. And everything like that. And then it ended up being a mixed tag team match. Uh, it was not a mixed tag team match, but a tag team match. It was Jay Lethal and, and Jeff Jarrett against Ric Flair and uh, Andrade, who a lot of people don't know. Andrade is actually Ric Flair's son-in-law because he's married to Charlotte. And it wasn't on TV. It was like a special event in Charlotte, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, you know, from the footage that I've seen, it looked bad. It really did. It just looked like an old man kind of out of it. And uh, it, it was sad. You know, it really was that, you know, Flair at this age still wants to compete, still wants to give the people what they want. But a lot of people don't. But what he doesn't seem to realize, yes, we find Ric Flair entertaining. Yes, that styling and profile, you know, the the, the limousine riding, uh, jet flying, kiss stealing, wheeling, dealing, son of a gun, styling and profiling and all that stuff, you know, woo. That's that's cool and everything like that, but to, to then to then step into the ring at you know at seventy, and then just be you know a shell of what you once were and not really kind of have the wherewithal. And then he collapses in the match, and you know it, it it was scary, but at the same time it's sad because you have a guy clinging on to what's left of his in ring wrestling career, but not realizing that it ended you know, 14 years ago, you know, 14, 15 years ago already. And it's just, it's just sad. This documentary, you know, it, it explores all of that. It doesn't really explore, it doesn't really explore, um, the, the, the ramifications surrounding his final match. But, you know, I just threw that in there because that, that, that's kind of where I'm at now with Ric Flair. After seeing that, I was just like, man, I just hope he, can understand that he doesn't need to wrestle anymore. He can make appearances and do talk shows and be like a guest star anywhere else, and everybody's going to give him the respect and admiration that he so rightfully deserves, but he doesn't need to step into the ring again. 
you know, and then there's some moments in his life where he didn't really, you know, the plane crash is kind of what kind of turned his head around about the whole, he had a plane crash in, in the late seventies where he didn't think he was going to survive. And he ended up, he did survive. And that kind of was like the catalyst for what eventually became the nature boy, Ric Flair of the eighties, you know, and then, uh, the tragic passing of his son was really, really, uh, really, really heartbreaking. The fact that he couldn't really deal with it. He didn't know how to deal with it. He didn't understand the idea that what what he goes through mentally, Flair himself, is nothing compared to what a younger person goes through. And it, it, it was heartbreaking. It really was. And I, I, I've heard a lot of people say that as a parent, the most the hardest thing that any parent can go through is losing a child. And the fact that Flair loses his youngest son to suicide is just was very heartbreaking to see that and and all the stuff like that and and they do the best that they could you know kind of coping with it and flair never really coped with it really at all i mean the guy still parties styles and profiles you know even now but you know it is heartbreaking to see that after a while and um you know like i said his last match was just you know his run in tna and then his farewell match that was earlier this year was just it was just sad you know, I really wish Flair could have just did the the farewell match with Shawn Michaels and then just be used on the outside, you know, like Legends Day or, you know, the, kind of like how they use Hulk Hogan, like the guest star, the guest speaker, you know, whatever, whatever. But, um, I mean, Flair is Flair, man. He's regarded as one of the greats because he is. He's earned it. And there's no doubt about it. Everything about Ric Flair screams um, styling and profiling. When you hear that, you know, he's got an iconic catchphrase and everything like that. And the fact that he uses the 2001 Space Odyssey theme as a, as a theme song, and that just screams, you know, a loud, obnoxious wrestler, you know, everything about that. And this documentary was incredible. It was something incredible. I was not expecting to be that entertained from a doc, from a from Peacock's documentary because Flair had did a WWE home video, but it, they didn't really delve that deep into his personal life. And at that time, I th- I want to say his son was still alive when that DVD had come out. So this one was much more personal and much more tragic in a lot of ways because a lot more had happened since then. So you know if you have, if you have Peacock and you have no, and you're waiting for, and you're you know you're trying to gear up for SummerSlam, which is this weekend. Uh, Definitely check out uh, Becoming Ric Flair. If you're definitely if you're a Flair fan, uh, definitely check out those documentaries that Peacock had been putting out. So, you know they're entertaining. They're entertaining to say the least. But do yourself a favor and watch Ric Flair, limousine riding, jet flying, kiss stealing, wheeling dealing, son of a gun, woo, styling and profiling, sixteen-time world heavyweight champion. The guy has it all, intensity, charisma, in-ring ability, you name it, he's got it. And there'll never be another Ric Flair in this time, or in this life, or the next. <laughs> but anyways, guys, that's going to go ahead and do it for today's episode. Uh, if you like the episode, be sure to follow the podcast on all podcast outlets, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcast, Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Google Play, Odyssey, Reddit, wherever you're getting your podcast from. Be sure to follow the podcast on all social media outlets. Uh, Instagram and Twitter, the Madhouse 21. Let me know what you guys thought about becoming Ric Flair. Are you a Flair fan? Did you enjoy this documentary? What is your favorite match with Ric Flair? What is your favorite moment with Ric Flair? 
whatever the case may be, let me know. Instagram and Twitter, the Madhouse21. Be on the lookout for more episodes as they come out. There's one more episode. We're going to talk about the WWE Peacock special called Evil, which is a series and not necessarily focusing on one superstar in particular, but a handful of superstars who have a little bit of a evil persona to them, a heel persona to them, if you will. So that'll be the last episode as we get ready for SummerSlam on Saturday night. Uh, So be on the lookout for that. Be on the lookout for anything and everything that comes out of this podcast. And of course, as always, be sure to embrace your inner madness.